If you have your Bibles, you can turn to um, Luke chapter 2 and stand as you find that for the scripture reading. Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to read beginning in verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And it came about when the angels had gone, out, gone away from them into the heaven, that the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see the thing that, ha- that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can't begin to understand and appreciate and fully fathom what you did in giving your Son for us. But we thank you, God, for the gift of life that you've given us. We thank you that you sent your Son to die for us, that our sins might be paid for, that your holiness and justice would be satisfied, and that we could enter into a right relationship with you through faith in your Son. Thank you for all that you've done, God. You've blessed us beyond words. We ask, God, that you would encourage and strengthen our hearts in the knowledge of your love for us in this time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. appreciated um, the little video there. It's also, it's always helpful to just kind of be thinking that through the eyes of a child, Christmas is not always what we have in mind. And um, it's certainly not about Santa Claus and it's not about presents, but it is about God becoming man, entering this world, giving himself for us, rising again from the dead so that we might have life with him. Truly phenomenal what the Lord has done. Um, if in saying that, though, in probably it's just in, in, in thinking again, meditating on Christmas and what the Lord has done and coming into this world, um, it, I was drawn to this one phrase that the angel said in verse 11 of, of Luke 2, for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
We all have our ideas of, of how Christmas impacts us, what the significance of it is. We have, all have memories as adults of Christmas's past and, and maybe gifts that we received or, or, or different um, events that took place. But to know the words of the Lord through the angel of what he says is most significant about the birth of Christ. And it is simply a Savior has been given to you. If you're here today, it's probably for one of two reasons. There may be many reasons, but one of two reasons probably characterizes why most of you are here today. Either you have, at some time in your life, acknowledged your need of a Savior, and you have acknowledged that Jesus is that Savior, or else you're here because of someone else who has acknowledged their need for a Savior. And it's Christmas, and so you decided to come with them today. So I just wanted to spend a moment at the front end of this message talking about Jesus, our Savior. You know, we all need one. I can't think of a more fundamental truth that God wants to impress upon us in the entirety of our life. We need a Savior. That is not a hard thing to appreciate or to understand. But surprisingly, many people refuse to acknowledge that most basic fundamental truth. I am in need of a Savior. And that is true for every single person who has ever been alive. Every person born into this world is in need of a Savior. There are no exceptions here. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of saving someone. I've had that experience twice that I can remember of. Once when I was fishing with our oldest son, who was only four or five years old at the time. And I had walked around a corner um, to get in a different position, and I just told my son, stay right here, I'll be right back. He slipped down a concrete embankment where the water was flowing, and was clinging to the concrete by his fingernails, and I heard him say, Dad, help me. And I came running. If he had slipped all the way into the river, the river would have just sucked him in with the churning of the little waterfall that was there, and he very likely would have died. That was a dramatic moment in both of our lives. He needed a Savior. And all he could say was, Dad, help me. I was in a restaurant in Kerrville a number of years ago. Patsy and I were, were eating with another couple, and we heard a woman screaming, Help him! He's choking! And I looked over, table near me, and this large man got up from his, from his table, and he is clearly in distress, choking. He can't breathe. He can't speak. And so I ran to him, and I was the first one there. Another woman was running from across the restaurant. I got there first, so I put my shoulder into her and bounced her off. And, and I said, I'm here first. And so I grabbed him. I've never done the Heimlich before in my life, but I've, you know, I've been instructed in it. My wife is the nurse, but I was there first. And so um, I grabbed him and I started heaving on him. And it wasn't hard enough. He was a big man. I could barely get my arms around him. And he was much taller than me. And so the wife is saying, harder, harder. So I said, okay. 
And so I spread my legs a little further, and I started popping him hard enough that his feet were coming up off the ground. And I just figured, I can't see what's happening because I'm hidden behind him, so I'm just going to keep doing it. And I did it and did it until finally the wife is saying, stop, stop. (laughs) Saved his life. He went and sat down. They finished their meal. Nobody said thank you to me. It was amazing. But he couldn't even speak to say, help me. But he needed a savior. And I doubt he'll ever forget that. We are helpless. When you need a savior, it's because there is nothing you can do for yourself. Someone else must help or you will die. And that is how the scripture portrays our condition when we are born into this world. There is nothing we can do for ourselves. Nothing. And unless someone intervenes, we will die. And the death that the scripture speaks of is an eternal separation from God. Eternity is a long time. And it is an eternity of conscious torment and punishment as the wages for our sin. We are helpless, and we need a Savior. I want us to look at a few passages of Scripture. If you turn over in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We're told in verse 12, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. The person who receives Christ, who believes in Christ, has the right to become a child of God. In other words, you are saved from your lost condition of separation and alienation from God to be brought into a family relationship with God. It is not true that every person who is born into this world is a child of God. That is not true. Every person who is born in this world has been created by God, is loved by God, but they are not a child of God until they place their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. Until that time, you are alienated from God. You are not His child. You become a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and in Christ alone. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And verse 13 excludes every other option. It says, who were born not of blood, meaning you cannot be born a child of God. No person enters this life in a relationship with God. No person is born saved. John and Heather Forrest just had a baby this week. We're thankful for that. Another little girl, four now that they've been blessed with. She had that baby eight minutes after coming into the birthing center in San Antonio. They almost had it on Interstate 10. They got caught in that concrete corridor because there was a wreck while she's having the baby. And so they barely made it out of that concrete quarter, 
And they got in the birthing center. Eight minutes later, the baby's born. John said he was in there just laughing because the baby wasn't born in the car. (laughs) She's a precious little girl. As every child is precious. Every child, the creation of God. Every child, a miracle. But no child is born in a relationship with God. You are not born a child of God. Secondly, not only are you not born a child of God, you cannot become a child of God by the will of the flesh. Meaning you cannot make yourself a child of God. You will never be good enough. And never means never. You can try your hardest. Many people think, well, I think I'll just stand before God one day and he's going to weigh my good works against my bad works and my good works will weigh more than my bad works and God will say, welcome into my heaven. I am sorry. No person will become a child of God by the will of the flesh. Your good works will never be good enough. We all fall short of the glory of God. All do. No one is good enough. Jesus says there is only one who is good, and that is God who is in heaven. Who do we think we are to think that we would be good enough to merit being called a child of God? You will not become a child of God by being born that way or by the will of your own flesh, no matter how dedicated you are. I don't know if you've ever talked to a Jehovah's Witness about their belief that there are 144,000 who will be saved living in heaven, all Jehovah's Witnesses. I had this conversation one time with a Jehovah's Witness that came to our home. And I said, you know, I just want to understand your faith. My faith tells me that I'm saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, tell me about your faith. Are you one of, I've heard there's 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses who will be saved. Are you one of them? And this person said to me, no, I'm not. And I said, has the 144,000 already been selected? And they said, yes, they have. So I said, you're telling me you have no hope of dwelling with God in heaven. And they said, no, that's not what I'm saying. And I said, then explain to me. And this person said to me, if I work hard enough, I can become one of the 144,000. But I said, but they've already been selected. And they said, that's right. So I'm saying, you're telling me then your good works can kick somebody else out. Exactly. Wow. Where's the rest? Where's the confidence? How can anybody ever know they're saved if it's based upon what we do? Now, that's an extreme example, but it goes down into every other faith that you can think of. If in any measure your faith rests upon what you have done, then you can never be sure of your salvation because it may never be adequate. We cannot be saved by the strength of our flesh, by the will of our flesh. And then finally, nor of the will of man, meaning no one else can confer salvation upon you. Churches would like to have that power. And many have claimed that power throughout the centuries. I've come to think this is one of the chief ways that you can distinguish a true 
church from a cult. My best friend growing up was Mormon. I've had Mormons tell me they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for their sins and rose again from the dead. Therefore, they're saved. That's what they've told me. And yet, my Mormon friend also believes that if he ever leaves the Mormon church, that he cannot be saved. That is a cult. Because the salvation is not dependent upon what Jesus has done and who Jesus is, but it is dependent upon my relationship with a particular group of people. That organization is conferring salvation upon me. And if I break fellowship with that organization, I can't be saved. Your salvation does not depend upon your fellowship with Bernie Bible Church or with any other church. No one, no organization, no ministry, no church can confer salvation upon you. You are born again, meaning you become a child of God, not by natural birth, not by your will, not by someone else's will. But it says, but by God. And God makes his children those who receive his son. Everything depends upon what we do with Jesus. God says, I love you enough to give my son for you. I can't imagine that love. Does, is it any wonder then that God who loves this world so much that he gave his son for this world would say to us, everything depends upon what you do with my gift. If you reject my son, you will not be saved. If you receive my son, you will be saved. He is the Savior. Reject him, you won't be saved. Receive him, you are saved. And I make you my child. Folks, there's no other way. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I hope you have come to an understanding that you need a Savior. I need a Savior. The Pope needs a Savior. Every man and woman on the face of this earth needs a Savior. And there is only one. And it is not ourselves. It is not what we can do. It is not what anyone else can do. It is Jesus Christ alone. And God has said, everything depends on what you do with the gift that I have offered you. Receive the gift, and you have the right to become a child of God. Reject the gift, and you will not be saved. Look over at John chapter 3, verse 15. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Believe in Christ. Same word or same synonym for chapter 1, verse 12. Receive him. Believe in him. And you have eternal life. 
1 John tells us that eternal life is Jesus himself. Jesus is eternal life. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And look at verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. If God wanted us to experience his wrath, if that was his desire in creating us, is that we experience his wrath, he would have never sent his Son. He loves us. And he does not want any person to experience his wrath. But there's only one of two choices here. Receive the Son and receive eternal life. Reject the Son and experience the wrath of God. It's eternal life or it's the wrath of God. God doesn't want you to experience his wrath. He loves you. He gave his son for you. If you will simply receive Jesus, place your faith in Christ, you need never experience the judgment of God. You have passed out of judgment into life, never to experience God's wrath. Just receive it. It's not complicated. It is simple enough that any child can understand and respond to In John chapter 20, verse 31, John tells us why he wrote the Gospel of John. These things have been written, John 20, 31, these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life In his name. Isn't it amazing what God requires? Nothing. Just receive my gift. And I save you. I give you eternal life. I make you a child of God. And you will live forever as my child. If you simply receive my son. How do you do that? We had a, a Bible school student at his hill this semester become a Christian. That happens ever so often. Kids grow up in Christian homes. This particular kid even went to Christian private schools his whole life. Graduated from a Christian private school. And had never entered into a personal relationship with Jesus. And so, I think it was a week, maybe two weeks into school, he's with his discipleship group. Two other students and a staff member. And they were just getting ready to to finish and, and go to class. And this student just stopped and said, guys, I, I need your prayers. And the, and the discipleship group leader says, sure, what, what do we want to pray for? And he goes, I don't know God. I don't have a relationship with him. That's not what he put in his application. (laughs) But now he's facing the truth. I need a savior. 
and I don't know him. He goes, help me. And the discipleship group leader, very wisely, I think, said, you know what to do. See, this is not something that you really have to have classes on. If you know you need a Savior, and the Bible tells you that Savior is Jesus, then say to Jesus, save me. It's not complicated. And he will. The scripture says, believe on him. So I have a little track here, one of my favorites. May I ask you a question? My guy that co-taught a class that I had in seminary. And I appreciate, there are lots of tracks out there that explain the gospel. And at the end of the track, they'll say, this is what you now need to do to become a Christian. I like this one a lot. Listen to how simple this is. First of all, he makes this, um, this statement. Remember, it is not a prayer that saves you. And see, that's part of the problem with this student who grew up in a Christian home, praise God, went to Christian schools, praise the Lord. But many times a person, particularly a young person, will pray a prayer, but never enter into a relationship with God because sometimes they're just doing what their parents told them to do. And then their confidence throughout their life is not in Christ, but it's in the prayer that they prayed. We are not saved because of what we do. We are saved because of what Christ has done. And our confidence is in him, not in what we do. So it is not a prayer that saves you. It is trusting Jesus Christ that saves you. Prayer is simply how you tell God what you are doing. So here's the prayer that doesn't save you. It doesn't get any more simple than this. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. Do you know that? Ask your wife. Ask your children. Ask your husband. But if you're not even sure that you're a sinner, if you've never asked God for anything, ask him to show you that you are a sinner. And I guarantee you, God will show you, and you will be undone. Dear God, I know I am a sinner. I know my sin deserves to be punished. The wages of sin is death. It deserves punishment. I believe Christ died for me and rose from the grave I trust Jesus Christ alone as my Savior. I'm not trusting my birth. I'm not trusting my willpower. I'm not trusting what somebody else has said. I am trusting Jesus Christ alone as my Savior. Thank you for the forgiveness and eternal life I now have. In Jesus' name, amen. What do you do to receive a gift? You just take it and say what? Thank you. That's all God's looking for. 
is just for us to say, thank you, God, for giving your son to die for me and rise again from the dead that I might be called a child of God. What greater privilege could we have? Jesus, save me. Thank you. And that's it. You're saved. And guess what? It doesn't depend on what I tell you. It's what God says. And God says in his word, to all who believe in him, they shall be saved. Period. Believe in him. And you shall be saved. You shall receive eternal life. And God says that he will send his Holy Spirit to live in you, who will testify to you that you are the child of God. And the Spirit of God cries out within us, Abba, Father, testifying, we are His. Amazing. So your salvation does not depend upon what you do. It doesn't depend on what anyone else does. And the assurance of your salvation doesn't depend on what what anyone else says. It depends upon what God says in His Word and by His Spirit. God sent his son because we needed a savior. There are four other things that God specifically says, for this reason I sent my son. I got out the concordance and looked it up. It surprised me to find out that the first time that phrase occurs in the scripture, God sent his son, is in Luke. It's not in Matthew, and it's not in Mark. You have to get to the third gospel before it says God sent his son and then gives reasons for why he sent his son. And so I got to thinking about that, and and Luke is the gospel where Christ is the man. John is the gospel where Christ is God. In Luke, he's king. Well, you don't send a king because he's the king. The king sends other people. So there is no statement in in the Matthew's gospel that God sent his son. It's interesting. And in Mark, he's the servant. Well, servants don't save people. They're just servants. You need more than a servant. You need the God-man. So Luke and John are the first gospels that speak about God using the phrase, God sent his son. In Romans 8, he sent him to be an offering for sin. In Galatians 4, verse 4, he sent him that he might redeem those who are under the law. So he's an offering for sin, which means sin has been paid for. He redeems those who are under the law, which means that there is no condemnation for those who have placed their faith in Christ. You do not have to perform in order to be accepted by God. Because you've been redeemed from under the law. But if you turn over to 1 John chapter 4. This is an interesting paragraph here. Because in one paragraph, three times it says, God sent his son for this reason. I want to introduce this this paragraph and just wrapping up this message. Now just speaking specifically to those of us who have placed our faith in Christ. 
and Christmas, because it is Christmas. Merry Christmas, by the way. I, one thing that as I get older that I struggle with, and maybe you do as well, is having the Christmas spirit, whatever that is. I think sometimes I'm more of a bah humbug type of guy. Not really. but I want to have the Christmas spirit. I want my, when my children were little, I wanted them to, to take joy in what God had done. And I used to tell them, Christmas is not about you, it's about Jesus. So we're not going to give you as much at Christmas as what we would give you at your birthday. We didn't always keep that, but we wanted it to be about Jesus. But that's not necessarily the wrong question or the wrong quest to have the Christmas spirit. But the question is, what is the Christmas spirit? And this passage speaks to that. When three different statements about why God sent his son. Look at verse 7, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. It strikes me that those two statements, loves God and is born of God, I'm sorry, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God, those two phrases are not synonymous. In other words, everyone who loves as God loves is born of God. He's saved. But he's also one who knows God personally, intimately. He's not saying that every Christian will always love as God loves. We know that's not true. And he's going to go into that. Look at the next verse. The one who does not love does not know God. He doesn't say the one who does not love is not a Christian. Listen, he doesn't say the one who does not love is not born of God. He doesn't say that. Thankfully, because you can be born of God and not loving as God loves. And if you're not loving as God loves, it shows that you're not really knowing God. Because if we really know God and are abiding in Christ and experiencing his life, then we will love because Christ is living in us to love through us. So the one who loves as God loves is both saved, born of God, and living in a personal, intimate relationship with him. He knows God. The one who doesn't love doesn't know God. He's still saved, but he's not knowing God. How can you say that? How can you say he doesn't know God? Because God is love. See, and that's the spirit of Christmas. For God so loved the world, he gave his son. It's not about me having warm fuzzies about a baby in a manger. It's about me knowing that God sent his son into this world that I might be saved and that I might know God and that God who is loved would be expressed through my life. Look at some more at this paragraph. Verse 9. By this the love of God was manifested in us, in us, not just to us, in us, that God has sent, this is the first of the three cents, God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In other words, he didn't send his son just to wipe away our sins. If all of your sins were removed, that wouldn't make you saved. It wouldn't make you alive. This is why Jesus had to rise from the dead. 
Romans chapter 5 says that he lives to save us. So here he, 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 he has given himself, he has sent his son to us that we might live through him. That we might know life, his life. Remember, all those who believe in him have eternal life. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and second sent and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I love that big word. Never sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but it's a nice word, propitiation. It basically means that, that God knew that his own justice and his own wrath had to be satisfied for us to be saved. That there is no way impossible for God to save a person without first satisfying his own justice, his own holiness. There are things that it is impossible for God to do. And God, it is impossible for God to lie. It is impossible for God to be other than he is. And he is a just God and his justice demands that it be satisfied. And the only way that justice could be satisfied was for one who is without sin to give himself in our place. And God says, I'm going to satisfy my own justice by giving my son to die as a substitute for those who have sinned against me. And in doing so, he is propitiated. Every religion on the face of the earth says that God has to be propitiated. It is Christianity alone that says we don't have to do the propitiating. Jesus did it. God gave his son to be a propitiation for our sins. And it is done. God is satisfied. That is why there is nothing we need to do other than just say, thank you, God, for what you have done for me. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one, get this, verse 12, no one has beheld God at any time. That includes John. But John held on to Jesus. He leaned over on his chest, remember, at the Last Supper. He was God in the flesh. But he wasn't. God the Father. He wasn't God in spirit. And even what John was seeing was God clothed. God almost masked in humanity. No man has seen God for all that he is. But listen, no one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. What's he getting at? You can never, you be, nobody alive today has seen God. We've never even seen Jesus. But John is saying this. If you live in an abiding relationship with God who is love, and he is expressing himself who is love through you, then you are seeing God. Wow. God in our humanity. Look how he picks up and and, and fleshes this out. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Listen, verse 14, and we beheld. Now this is not the we of the apostles. I'm saying maybe too much here. Go back to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, look at verse 3. 
What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. See, this is the we of the apostles. But every time we is used in 1 John of the apostles, it is followed by the contrasting you. Okay? We, you. We, the apostles, you, everybody else who's not an apostle. That's not here. Here in 1 John 4.14, we, meaning all of us, beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. It's a third sent. He sent Him to redeem. He sent Him to be the propitiation. He sent Him that we might live. He sent Him to be the propitiation. And He sent them to be the Savior of the world. And how do people see that? When we love... As God loves, because we have come to Jesus for our salvation, and God gives us his very life, and he has satisfied all his just demands against us. And now we love each other in community the way that God has created us to love. People see God. That's amazing. I was reading through student evaluations from last semester. And one of the students said, I'm riding home, and I'm calling people, and it's the grace of God. It's not always this way. Hear me on that. not bragging. I read it and just said, it's a miracle. She says, I'm calling people and riding home, telling people I have never seen what I'm seeing here. That these staff love us, and they don't even know us. They love each other, and they love us. And I am impressed. See, that's what he's talking about. People want to see a God who loves them. And that loving God who is love is manifesting himself to the world as those who are saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Abide in Christ. And allow him to express that love through us to one another. Just this past week, I wish I could remember where I read things. I read a story, and I'll wrap it up with this, of 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 something that happened in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. Where there was a prisoner who who was being falsely accused and was going to be punished for something he had not done. And another prisoner stepped in and took the beating in his place. And then it became known to everybody in the camp, the Japanese as well as the prisoners, that man suffered innocently in love for another. And the writer says it totally transformed that prison camp. Nothing changed Get this, he said, nothing changed in terms of the abuse and, and, the, and the, what the guards did to us and the inhumane treatment. But he says, but we were no longer captives. We lived there, but no longer were our spirits captive to what was happening to us. We became free men once we saw love conquers sin and hatred. Now again, not apart from Jesus Christ. The whole context of this story was the man did this because of his faith, his relationship with Christ. 
Many people in the world today want to push love on everybody, but it's a love that changes the world apart from Jesus. That is not what John is saying here. God loves this world. And God intends that his love as extended to us in Jesus be life-changing. But we must receive his son. They said that those prisoners began seeing sin overcome in their love for one another, starting to minister to each other, care for one another, even sharing expertise that each one had. One guy had knowledge in another one area, another had knowledge in another. They started holding classes within the prison camp, building each other up and edifying each other in whatever ways they could. Love conquering their circumstance. But it's love in relationship with Jesus Christ. We cannot pursue love and expect to find love. God never says, here's the consequence, chase the consequence. God says, here's the cause, Jesus Christ. Place your faith in me. And as you place your faith in Christ and abide in Christ, the love of God will be manifest through you. And people will see God who gave their son for this world. That's the Christmas spirit. Living in Christ, from Christ, so that the love of God is expressed through our lives. I'll close us in prayer.